Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Kind loving Father, we're thankful yet again for all the blessings, for all the wonderful things that you do, for who you are. And now we seek you through your word. May your spirit give us understanding, courage, apply to our lives and our hearts. And... Uh, Make us what you want us to be, in Jesus' name, amen. There is an incomplete gospel message going around the world. Now, when we, when we think about Matthew 24, 14, this, this last day sign, this positive thing, the gospel will be preached around the world. When you think about this and you compare it to Revelation chapter 14, you see that there's a similarity. There is a connection between Matthew 24, 14 and Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, and that's where we're going to focus our attention in the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Because think about it, uh, uh, as we'll see uh, throughout the series, these angels that are are, are proclaiming these messages are a symbol of people. And and people are proclaiming this message, and so if, if if this message is going to be proclaimed around the world, who is going to do it? Because the implication here is that if the gospel is going to be preached around the world, Jesus doesn't want an incomplete gospel to go around the world. He wants the full gospel message. And if it's the full gospel message, who's going to preach it? We need to understand what this gospel message is. We need to understand what this last day message is because we're going to be proclaiming it. In the book Christian Service, page 111, author Ellen White says that the church must realize its obligation to carry the gospel of what? The gospel of present truth to every creature. So notice we, 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 the title of the book, of course, is The Present Truth in the Three Angels' Messages. Mrs. White mentions this concept of the present truth, and notice that she says that it is our option to preach it. Is that what she says? It is our obligation, it is our duty to preach this message. So if, if, if I have a duty, if I have an obligation to preach a message, I got to know what the message is. Make sense? Indeed. Now, you know, when we think about this concept of present truth, you know, I, I remember as, as a, I mean, I've been in the church some 33 years or so, and I remember hearing about the present truth. Uh, la verdad presente in Spanish. Uh, it was something that I heard constantly. Uh, but, you know, and, and that may be some of your, your case too if you've been in a church for a long time. Um, but interestingly though, I have been asked by members of the church who have been in church for a long time, you know, pastor, we have heard about this, this concept, this phrase, the present truth, but we don't know what it is. What is the present truth? And maybe you're asking yourself the same question. Maybe you're asking yourself the same question. Now, this concept of the present truth is not just something that is unique to Seventh-day Adventists. Are you serious? It's not something that we have a, a, a property rights on and nobody else, because this is something that others have talked about. In fact, in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, uh, uh, evangelist, pastor of yesteryear, he, he published a book called The Present Truth a collection of sermons preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So this concept of present truth is well known. Now, as the phrase uh, may, may suggest, the present truth is a message that is applicable to the present time. Something that is applicable to today, it, to the present, is a message. But being this the case, that would suggest that there's always been a present truth. 
If you lived 50 years ago, there was a present truth. If you lived 100 years ago, there was a present truth. There's always been a present truth. In fact, the Apostle Peter said it this way, 2 Peter 1.12, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in what? In the present truth. So notice, in Peter's time, he's talking about a present truth, a truth that applied to them. That was their present truth. Yeah. Now, there, there are a number of examples. When we think about present truth messages in Scripture, there are a number of examples that we can find, plenty of examples. I'm just going to quote two of them. Um, so notice, biblical examples of present truth. The first one is Noah. You remember Noah? Right? God was, uh, you know, he, he was fed up for the evil of the world, and so he was going to destroy the world with a flood. Noah preaches 120 years, a message of preparation, so that the people of his day would accept that message. Because, by the way, you know, the, the reality is that God gave Noah a blueprint of the ark. See, his intention was not just that one ark would be built. He gave them blueprints of the ark so that as he preached this message for 120 years, if people accepted this message, he would have help, plenty of help. Let's build all these arks because the flood is coming. But of course, we know they rejected the message and only one, uh, one ark sufficed. But that was their present truth. The world was going to be destroyed by a flood then. That is not our present truth. God's not going to destroy the world now with a flood. He's going to destroy by fire, right? So back then, that was their present truth, the truth that applied to them. And we think about Nineveh, in the time of Jonah. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites with a message, they need to repent or you're going to be destroyed, right? This was a message that applied at that time to the Ninevites. And, and of course, we know that at that time, they accepted the message, they repented, right? It was much later that God destroyed them. But that was their present truth. So notice then, that we have the, these, these, they find these truths in Scripture that are applicable to the time in which they were written. That is present truth. But now, there are also truths that while they, they fall under the umbrella of what we would call present truth in their time, notice they are timeless. Some present truths are timeless. The example, of course, is the knowledge of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of humanity. In the Old Testament, there was a truth, that was a present truth, that the Messiah was going to come. They were to look forward to the Messiah, and of course they did all these sacrifices and ceremonies, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, that to, to, to show that, that this was what they were looking for. In Peter's time, this was present truth. Jesus died for the sins of humanity. In our time, it's present truth, because salvation is found in no other name. So there are present truths that are timeless, that apply to all time. But now... What is today's present truth? That's what we want to find. What is the present truth for today? What is that, that, that message that we must be proclaiming to the world? Well, we're going to read the present truth message right now. We find it in Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to read from verses 6 through 11. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 11. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink 
of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This has become known, of course, uh, uh, as the three angels' messages. The three angels' messages, friends, is today's present truth. It is today's newspaper, as it were. Yeah? It's a message for today. And a careful examination of these uh, messages will reveal that much of what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists is found in those messages. And, And again, this is the premise of the book. The premise of the book is that we find these things because a lot of times, let's face it, even as Seventh-day Adventists, you may have been in a church for a long time, but but I've seen it, I heard it, that that a lot of times you don't know what you believe. We need to understand what we believe and why we believe it because if if this message is going to be proclaimed around the world, it's going to be proclaimed by us. And if you don't know what the message is, then what are you going to be talking about? That's the point here, friends. Uh, Much of what we believe as Adventists is found in these messages. And so when we understand them, uh, it will will not only, it it will do two things. It will provide us again with the the message that we ought to be proclaiming. And at the same time, it will also answer our critics because our critics are out there. And they, 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 they think that we think things are extreme, that we're misinterpreting Scripture and all those things. And so it will give us the Scripture knowledge that we need to, to defend, if you will, uh, uh, what we believe from Scripture. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, of course, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot in here, and, and, the, and the, the series will be based on these passages. We're not going to go through all these passages today. Today we're going to focus on the first angel's message. And, and we're going to spend some time on the first angel's message. In fact, the first five sermons of the series are based on the first angel's message because there's a lot in there, okay? So let's go back to our first angel's message. Notice the three angel's message, and it's, it constitutes God's final warning to the world before Jesus' return. So Revelation 14, 6. Revelation 14, 6 is our passage for today. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, uh, as, you, as you read the book of Revelation, up to this time, if, you, if you're reading through uh, chapters 1 through 14, you would find that there are a number of angels in Revelation. Okay, there are different angels doing different things. This is why John says, I saw another angel, because there's been a number of angels doing this. Now, this word angel is important that we understand what the word angel means. Because, you know, we, we often think about, as we think about angel, the image that comes to our mind is this being dressed in white with wings on it, right? That's what we call an angel. But, but the word angel in the Greek, angelon, means a messenger. That's what the, the word angel means. And, and this is going to be very important later on in the series uh, as we talk about uh, Revelation chapter 10. But the point here is that John is seeing a messenger with a message. It's a messenger with the message that is to be proclaimed to the whole world. And what is the message? Revelation 14, 6. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Now notice that uh, uh, this angel is in mid-heaven. 
in the midst of heaven or in mid-heaven. This is an expression that only we find in Revelation. Revelation 8, 13, 14, 6, and 19, 17. And mid-heaven is the highest point in the heavens, which the sun occupies at noon, where what is done can be seen and heard by everybody. And the point here is, again, it's a reemphasis of the fact that this is a message that must go around the world, that everybody must hear. This is not something that just God wants for Seventh-day Adventists. This is not something that a God only wants for people in the United States. This is a message that every human being is to hear. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will go to all the world, to all the inhabited world, that, that word that he uses there in Revelation 14, 6. So the everlasting gospel is being preached from midst heaven so that everybody sees it, everybody hears it. So what is the everlasting gospel? Again, silly question. Because you say, well, pastor, you know, it's just tell, the, just tell the world that Jesus died for their sins. Amen? Yeah. Jesus died for us. That's good news, isn't it? But is that it? Is that it? The, is the death on the cross the crux of the, uh, of the gospel message? In other words, is it, is it just that? Is the gospel just that Jesus died for our sins? No. There's much to it. So let's, let's take a moment and, and define this, earth, uh, this everlasting gospel because uh, you'll see there there's much to it. Notice, the everlasting gospel, it is the good news about Christ, his ministry, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his subsequent enthronement on the heavenly throne. It is about his intercession and judgment and is soon returned to the earth. So notice there is a lot to the everlasting gospel. It's not just the fact that Jesus died for our sins, although what Jesus did, of course, is foundational, right? But it's not it. It, it, it didn't end there, okay? And so if we're going to understand what the everlasting gospel is, then we must go to the sanctuary. So notice the everlasting gospel and the sanctuary. If we are to understand the gospel, we must understand the sanctuary. Now, of course, the sanctuary message is extensive. It's a big message. There's a lot of details to it. And so we could spend a long time talking about this, the, the, the sanctuary message. Today, we're just going to do a quick overview of it in order to understand uh, the gospel. Now, it is here that there is the clearest difference between the gospel as presented by Seventh-day Adventists and as presented by our evangelical Christian friends. Now, I don't want to seem exclusive as if I'm just attacking our evangelical Christian friends. I'm not, because they're doing great work. Many are doing fantastic work. They send missionaries around the world. They're doing uh, important works, in some cases, greater than us. But they have a different understanding, or at least a limited understanding of the gospel message. It is an incomplete gospel message without the sanctuary. And let's face it, only Seventh-day Adventists are, are talking about the sanctuary, because the sanctuary, as we'll see, is an object lesson of the plan of salvation. It is an illustration that God gave to his people, the Israelites, because he wanted them to understand what he was going to do to save them. And we, if we're going to understand what God has done and is doing, because not just what he's done, but he, but he is doing right now in order to save us, we need to go to the sanctuary. This is why we're going to do that today. Now, the Bible tells us that God established the sanctuary because he wanted 
a close, intimate relationship with his people. Imagine that. All right, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he tells Moses the instruction. He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, that I may tabernacle around them. This is why it's also referred as to the tabernacle, because God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to have an intimate relationship with them. Because there's something about when you live with somebody, right? When somebody lives with you, that's when you get to really know that person. You get to see that person when that person is good and when that person is not so good. Yeah? Tony doesn't live with us yet. But he's seen me now in, in, in the non-pastoral without my suit on and that kind of thing. He could tell you a story or two. They're all good, though. They're all good. But there's something about, you know, when you, when you live with somebody, there's an intimacy, right? And God wants that intimacy with us. He told the, the, the Israelites to, to build them a tabernacle. The sanctuary has always been pivotal. Notice how David says it, Psalm 77, 13, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Is in the sanctuary. Now, in the sanctuary, in the service, there are three great acts that occurred that God wanted the Israelites to understand so that they would understand the gospel message. So three great things, three great acts that took place in the yearly cycle of the sanctuary services. The first one, notice, so the three great acts of the sanctuary, the first one, the death of the sacrifice. That was the first thing that happened. It was important that there was a, 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 a sacrifice that died in place of the sinner. Then you had the ministry of the priest and the transfer of sin to the sanctuary. And finally, you had the removal of sin from the sanctuary. These are the three great acts. Sacrifice, then the animal died. From there, now the priest takes over, and there's a transfer of sin taking place, and finally the removal of sin from the sanctuary. So thus, notice, through symbols and ceremonies... The sanctuary outlined the complete gospel message in detail. Everything that the God was going to do to save humanity is highlighted in these three great acts of the sanctuary that occurred in the sanctuary. The service of the sanctuary, of course, was based on the sacrifice of animals. That seems kind of strange to us, but that's how God established it. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. This had a symbolism. This had a meaning, of course. And so this is what took place. Every day you had uh, the sinner. Normally it was um, the father of the house because this was a patriarchal society. And so they, the, the father uh, or the husband, he would come uh, uh, and, and he would bring the sacrifice. Now, there were a number of different animals that were used. But for the sake of the symbolism, let's think about the lamb, okay? So here comes the, 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 the person, the man, carrying his lamb. And, you know, the, we think about the camp of the Israelites because the tabernacle was right in the center. If you live right in the corner of, you know, outside corner of the, of, of the entire camp, you had to walk a long way with your lamb in your hand all the way to the tabernacle, and you pass by, all the neighbors are looking. Here, here comes Terrence with his little lamb. They, they already knew what was happening, right? There was a sin that you needed to, to, to deal with. But of course, they couldn't criticize you because they had the lamb too that they had to bring the next day or something. So they brought the lamb in the entrance of the tabernacle. Now, 
the, the sinner would, would, would place his hands on the head of the, of the lamb, touching the lamb, confessing the sins. And this was, there's a symbolism here. The symbolism is the transfer of sin from the sinner to the lamb, okay? And once the confession was made, he took a knife and he killed the lamb. So notice, the lamb died in the sinner's place, right? There was a transfer of sin. My sin, here I am confessing my sins. I confess my sins. There's a transfer of sin. Now the, the lamb symbolically is carrying with those sins and the lamb dies in my place. The Bible says that the soul that sins must die, right? The wages of sin is death. So somebody has to pay it with their life. And so God provided a way in order for us as the sinner could be forgiven, the substitute. And that substitute was the lamb, of course. All right? Now, who did that lamb represent? Jesus Christ, right? There's a, there's a purpose for this. Remember when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him there in, in, in the Jordan River, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, John the Baptist understood what, who Jesus symbolized. He, he understood these sacrifices in the, in the sanctuary, and that symbolized the Messiah to come. And, of course, he knew that Jesus was that Messiah. He knew that Jesus was that Messiah. And so notice then, that lamb, that lamb that the sinner brought to the sanctuary that died in his place was a symbol of Jesus who died in place of us all, right? This is, we're still in the first great act, the death of the sacrifice. The services, or through the services in the sanctuary, God demonstrated the great cost of sin. Through these sacrifices, God pointed toward the great Sacrifice, Savior, and substitute Jesus. Yeah, so God is here again. Remember, he is trying to teach the Israelites, and of course us, what he was going to do to save them. And that salvation was going to come through a substitute that would take your sins and die in your place and pay your debt. The death of the sacrifice. But did it all end there? Is that it? Was there more to it? There was more to it. No, the, the ritual did not end there. Okay? And again, this is where our evangelical Christian friends end their proclamation. They end the, right there in the death of the sacrifice. They don't go any further. Jesus died for our sins. Fantastic. And again, that's, praise God for that. It is foundational. Jesus died for our sins. But the services in the sanctuary, which were the object lesson, the picture, the illustration of the uh, plan of salvation, did not end there. It continues. Now notice, depending on the sacrifice that was offered, the priest either ate part of the animal or sprinkled some of his blood in the sanctuary. Again, there's a number of, there's different uh, animals that were used, but notice here now, the priest comes in to do his part. That is also part of the services in the sanctuary. And so now the priest comes in contact with the dead animal, right? Either by touching his blood, he would take some of that blood and bring it in the tabernacle and sprinkle, or he would eat a part of the, the, the flesh of the animal. The point is, he comes in contact with this animal. So notice, the, the sin was transferred from the sinner who brought the lamb, now the, the lamb has it, from the lamb to the priest, and from the priest to the sanctuary. This took place every day. And that's a, this is a concept that, that is often ignored 
or, or misunderstood this concept of tra- the transference of sin. But that took place, again, from the lamb, or from the sinner to the lamb, from the lamb to the priest, from the priest to the sanctuary. Now, while Jesus was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, guess what? Jesus was also the priest. See, it's everything is about Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. He is the center of the gospel. He is the foundation. Everything is about Christ. So he is our priest too. Notice Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected in not man. We know that the earthly tabernacle was simply a picture, a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? And so what's happening, what, what happened in the earthly sanctuary is something that happens in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus there ministers as our high priest. Notice uh, Hebrews 4.14. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is that priest? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And so friends, notice then that the cross of Calvary was not the end of the salvation process. Was not the end of the salvation. It was the first part, but not the end of it. Jesus, the Lamb who died for us, now ministers where? in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. Because everything was about Christ. He was a symbol of it all. Now you remember that in the Old Testament, um, the, 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 the priest was the mediator between the sinner and God. They needed a priest. And so this is why Jesus ministers. When Jesus goes, resurrects and, and, and goes back home, he goes back home to the heavenly sanctuary to carry out his, his, his duty, his role as our priest, to minister on our behalf before God. That's what he went to do. Because remember, that what, what happened in the sanctuary was the object lesson of something that the reality of, of everything that took place in heaven, of who Jesus is. But now, once the priest takes some of that blood, sprinkles it in before the, the veil or eats some of the, the flesh, did the process end there? Did, it, did the service in there, Terrence? What happened? What, what, need, what else needed to happen? Huh? The day of atonement. This was also part, remember, the three great acts, the death of the sacrifice, then the second one was the role of the priest and the transfer of the sin to uh, uh, the tabernacle. The third one was the removal of sin from the tabernacle, and that took place in the day of atonement. There was just part of the yearly cycle. So notice in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27. Also, the, day, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. This was the only day in the, in the yearly cycle of rituals and sacrifices where somebody entered the most holy place. If you look at the tabernacle... The tabernacle was divided in two, the first two-thirds of it. If, you were, if you're coming inside the tabernacle, uh, uh, the first two-thirds of it was the holy place. And there you had the, candle, the, the candlestick, the, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. That was there in the most holy place. The, the last third of the tabernacle was the most holy place. That's where you find the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, the Ten Commandments are inside the Ark. That's where the presence of God was. And anybody, nobody just could just waltz in there and think that it was okay. Because the moment you waltz in there, you drop dead. 
because that was where the presence of God was, and we're sinners. And so only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, okay, on the Day of Atonement. So notice that uh, there's a couple of things about the Day of Atonement. The first one, the Day of Atonement was a day of judgment and a solemn time for repentance. This is for the entire people of Israel. And I want you to think about this because they, individually, they had already brought their sacrifice and killed it and were forgiven. They, they, they walked away forgiven. But there was still a time of repentance. This is a time of judgment. It was a day to ensure that was complete harmony between God and his people. God had to ensure that. This was a corporate thing. It also was a day to cleanse the sanctuary from the sin transferred all year long. Every day, people brought their sacrifices, and then when they killed the sacrifice, the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood. This was a repetitive thing. Symbolically, all the sins had been transferred to the sanctuary all year long. And so there had to be a cleansing of the sanctuary. By the way, we're going to hear about this cleansing of the sanctuary later on because uh, this is repeated in a prophecy that Daniel is given in Daniel 8.14, which is very applicable to the present truth message. We'll talk about that later on. And then finally, the Day of Atonement also symbolized the final removal of sin. Now again, even though the individuals brought their sacrifice to the sanctuary, confessed the sanctuary, transferred their sins to the sacrifices. The sacrifice died in his place. The person would leave. Although the sin was forgiven, there's still a record of that sin because the sin is transferred to the sanctuary. This is why it needed to be cleansed, okay? The record of sin is still there. This is why there was such a thing as a day of atonement, okay? If there was no record of sin, there was no need for the Day of Atonement. But God needed to make, make sure that there was peace between them, that there was a time of repentance. And by the way, he, the Israelites were told that if they were not in repentance, they were not at peace with God, if they were not ready for the Day of Atonement, they were cut off from the people. And that was a death sentence. So this was a very important day for the Israelites, okay? Now, when you think about the Day of Atonement, and the final removal of sin, when you think about prophecy, in particular the book of Revelation, does the final removal of sin remind you of something? I want you to think about this, what happened in the Day of Atonement. And so on the Day of Atonement, they would choose two goats. First, the high priest, remember the high priest is the only one who can go into the most holy place to minister. He had to make sure that he was at peace with God. So he had to do a sacrifice for himself before engaging in the activities of the Day of Atonement. Then they would choose two goats, one for God and one for Azazel or the scapegoat, okay? The the, the goat that was chosen for God, this time there were no sins that were confessed upon it. It was pure, the symbol of the purity of Jesus, right? Jesus did not sin. They would sacrifice that goat, and the high priest would bring some of the blood of that goat into the most holy place. He would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. That was a symbol of the cleansing, because now this is a pure blood. The other other sacrifice, the blood, remember, had sin transferred to it, okay? It was contaminated, for for lack of a better word. Again, this is all symbolic. But this time, now this is a a pure goat, no sins. He would take some of that blood, sprinkle it in the mercy seat, thereby cleansing the sanctuary. However, 
as he exits the sanctuary, now he is carrying upon himself all the sins that were accumulated throughout the year. All right? And, and what he would do is he would come out, and now he would place his hands on the scapegoat, symbolically transferring the sins that had been accumulated all year long onto the scapegoat. The scapegoat is a symbol of who? Satan. Satan is the one responsible for sin. Okay? And of course, now that this goat was, was taken into the wilderness, and there it would it eventually die. Now again, now what does that remind you of? Can that remind you of something? After the 1,000 years, when, when the 1,000 years start, Jesus comes, there's a period of 1,000 years, a millennium we, we, we talk about. Satan is left in the wilderness by himself, just like the scapegoat was taken into the wilderness by himself. Eventually, the, the scapegoat would die, okay? So Satan spends 1,000 years in the wilderness only to eventually die as well because he carries with the sins of humanity. He is the one responsible for him. And so, and so I mention that because the millennium is also part of this present truth, okay? Because it is part of the gospel message. When we think about the sanctuary and all the three great acts that took place in the sanctuary and the day of atonement, the thousand-year millennium is part of it. And we need to talk about that. This is why our, the third session of, of our lessons is on the thousand years, because what we see in the thousand years is what we saw at the end of the Day of Atonement. And this is what we're, we're going to look at that in the future, okay? Now, uh, um, of course, uh, um, the everlasting gospel, when we think about the everlasting gospel, by, by the way, I, 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 I didn't mention these, I just talked about it, but the sins of the sanctuary were symbolically transferred to the scapegoat, which represented Satan, and the scapegoat, of course, was taken into the wilderness where it would die alone. Again, this represents Satan will be punished for our sins at the end of the 1,000 years. So notice... The everlasting gospel, when we think about the everlasting gospel, this message that we're proclaiming around the world, it includes the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary and the work of judgment taking place right now in heaven since 1844 when the 2300 years of Daniel 814 have ended. Now, we're going to cover that part of the 2300 years and how we got that. But the fact of the matter is Jesus is doing a work right now in the heavenly sanctuary, the work that took place in the day of atonement in the earthly sanctuary. And this is part of this everlasting gospel that must be preached around the world. Now again, the, the, these angels of Revelation 14 refer to God's people, God's ambassadors who proclaim the truth. You and I, friends, because while other Christians are doing great service, great job in teaching the gospel message until the cross, it is only Seventh-day Adventists who have a complete understanding of the gospel message because it is reflected in the sanctuary. Nobody else is talking about that. And this highlights the importance of what we believe and who we are. This is why I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church, more than a church, is a movement that God has raised for such a time as this. And it is an awesome responsibility and a great mission that we have. Now, again, I don't want to seem exclusive because salvation does not depend upon what church you belong to. Salvation is dependent upon Jesus and Jesus alone. That is gospel. But if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, you better pay attention to what they're saying. You better pay attention to what they're saying. People need to learn the whole gospel truth 
And only Seventh-day Adventists have that complete understanding because of the sanctuary message. Sanctuary message is important. In the book Evangelism, page 119, author Ellen White says, that in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been sent in the world as watchmen and light bearers. Watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning message for a perishing world. Notice what we are? Watchmen and light bearers. Okay? She continues. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import. The proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing, notice, nothing to absorb their attention. This must be a priority in our lives. God did not share this message for you so that you will feel all woman fuzzy and come to church on Sabbath and go home and do it the next day. That's not why we're here. And if that's why you're here, if that's what we're all here, listen, all we all need to do is go outside, close the doors, and, and sell the building for something else. The reason we're here is because God has chosen us, God has re- raised this movement with a special message that he wants the world to hear, and it is your obligation, according to Mrs. White, to proclaim it. If you don't do it, the rocks will cry out, because it's going to happen. But then you'll miss out on the blessing. The fact that God wants to use you, friends. Some of you know that I was in the Navy. And because I was in the Navy, I've always developed, I've had this uh, admiration. I don't know if that happened to you, Terrence. But I've always had this admiration to the Navy SEALs. I'm sorry, Terrena. It starts with a T. Tara, Terrena, Terrence. Listen, but you, you can't blame me. I don't know if this happened to you, but I, I, I enjoy everything that has to do with Navy SEALs. I, 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 if there is a show on TV about Navy SEALs, I'm watching it. Uh, um, I've listened to audiobooks on leadership written by Navy uh, SEAL commanders. Great stuff. Uh, uh, videos on their training, BUDS training, basic underwater demolition. That, that, uh, I enjoy, I just, there's something about them, you know what I mean? And there's a story of Chief Ed Byers. He was a team of SEAL Team 6, and he uh, received the Medal of Honor for risking his life to rescue, uh, rescuing a doctor that had been captured by the Taliban. And after the rescue, the, the doctor that uh, was rescued, he wrote a book about his experience, and, and he simply said something about the SEALs. He said, they'll never quit. They have a mission to accomplish, and they'll never quit until the mission is accomplished. Well, friends, God has given you and I a mission. And he wants you to be part of his special forces, uh, of his Navy SEALs, if you will. There are, there's a world of people that have been captured by Satan, by, his, by, his, by the confusion of the, of the lies that he's been proclaiming. And the only way they will be liberated is by the preaching of the everlasting gospel, of accepting the everlasting gospel. We should never quit. Because if we do, who will proclaim the present truth? Who will do the rescuing? I don't know about you, but I am honored to be part of God's special teams. And I want you to join me. Is that your desire today? 
God has given you a mission to be part of these special teams. Now we must proclaim this message. We must have the willingness and the courage to do it and do what we need to do to understand it so that we can properly share it with others. Is that your desire today? Amen. 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 This is part of the present truth. And we'll continue talking about the present truth uh, as we move along in the next uh, few weeks. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.